the training I see most people do on the air bike is just flat out wrong. Like it's, it's not even like close for a lot of people. Like they go straight to the lactic work, the painful stuff, the stuff where you feel like, oh my gosh, I just feel like I was sucking on the tailpipe of a car or like drank battery acid or something like that. Like your muscles are all burning, your lungs are burning, everything hurts, you feel like you're dying. Most of your training should not be that. Most of your training that you should do on the air bike should be longer, easier aerobic endurance work that will, yes, extend into lactate threshold or VO2 max or maybe even a little bit higher than that. Or you'll spend more time on powerful bursts that aren't super painful. So actually a lactic power or a lactic endurance. So that's anywhere from like 8 to 12 seconds to up to 18 to 20 seconds. So you're really not getting into that 30, 40, 50 of that really painful zone where you're you're unable to repeat that effort if you came back and did it again. The goal is for you to create sustainability regardless if that is sprint or that is a longer enduring effort. Either way, you need to come back and hit that again because you're not so wrecked from the first times that you actually hit those intervals. So if you're doing a lot of those mid-range efforts, you're probably not even able to create effective power or efficiency on the air bike, which that's the whole point. And if you're spending all that time in that mid-range, you're kind of burning the candle at both ends and probably seeing minimal adaptation from that stress. So please stop wasting your time. Please let me help you and be your sensei and teach you the ways to train on the assault bike. Hey, it's Ben Wise, and this is The Fitness Movement. Fitness Movement is brought to you by Zor Fitness. Zor Fitness is my company and my platform to deliver incredible training-related content to people just like you. I don't just podcast. I write in-depth fitness articles. I break down common movements in the sport of fitness. I program workout plans, and I offer one-on-one coaching for competitive and recreational athletes. And the best part is most of what I have on ZorFitness.com is totally free. Check out these resources by going to ZorFitness.com. That's Z-O-A-R Fitness.com. Hope to see you there. And we're back to my rant on the air bike. So realize that this is not just about the assault bike. I named it that because that is searchable. No one searches the term air bike. I'm just going to be talking about all of them. So realize that you have a Rogue Echo bike. If you have a Schwinn Airdyne, any of those sort of models, it's going to be perfectly fine. And all this is going to apply to it. If you're more curious about comparing these different brands, I actually wrote an article on this. It's called Rogue Echo Bike versus the Assault Bike Battle of the Brands. I will link to that in the show notes. If you go to zorfitness.com slash podcast slash 005, this episode's number, you'll get the show notes from this show. That's the case for any show. If you go there, I don't only outline the shows. I'll like put like helpful little resources in there. So for example, for this show, I'll link to that article. I'll link to, I broke down the assault bike for an actual movement. And that one I did say specific to assault bikes. So you can go check that out. I will link to RPMs versus watts, charts, and some other things like that. There's kind of neat resources as well as the actual outline for this episode. So go check that stuff out. I'll also link to videos that are actually showing and demoing how to set up your assault bike for optimal power output, some stuff like that. So go check that out. Again, that's zorfitness.com slash podcast slash 005. So let's talk about it. Rogue versus Assault. Those are the two main brands. If you go into most gyms around the country that are kind of functional fitness gyms, you're going to see that they have either Rogue or Assault. And sometimes a mixture of the two. And that is one reason why online qualifiers like the Open have not adopted an air bike into their events yet. So basically, every single gym around the world uses Concept2 rowers, and that's why you see rowers in the open, And because the rowers also have an onboard computer that makes sure that every single rower, regardless if it has a little bit more dust or dirt or like some like stuff like that, like 
Yes, your damper setting might be different, but every single time because of that onboard computer, you're going to get the same results regardless if you go in a, a rower that's old in the United States versus a, a rower that's new in Mexico versus whatever. Like it's going to be the same. It's consistent, not over just time, but model to model, it's going to be the same. That cannot be said for the air bike. We have differences in terms of wattage or calories or how they're kind of measured, how many ghost calories you get, how quickly you can get up to speed, how long that momentum holds on to. There's a bunch of differences between Rogue and Assault, and those are the main two, but not just between those two brands. Also between like generations one and two or three of those actual brands, especially with Assault, that's where I see the biggest differences. If you have like an old Assault bike, you're probably going to get more calories on it quicker than if you have a newer Assault bike. So like generation one, the one with like the rubber pedals, you'll get way more calories on those than the ones with like the metal pedals that are newer. Realize that if you actually test on one bike, even if it's the same generation from Assault and you go to a different bike, you might get a different resistance, but it's going to read as the same RPMs or the same wattage. So you can't use the results from one bike or one generation or one brand to compare against any other because there's not an onboard computer in that piece of equipment. Realize that you just cannot compare your results. And this is like super frustrating. I'll be honest. So I'll tell you a quick story. So when I was a full-time coach at a gym, I had everyone fighting over this one bike in my classes because everyone knew that that one bike, it got nicknamed Seabiscuit because you could go at the same body layout, but you would be able to get a much better result on that bike. It just spun easier because the fan blades were all like warped. They were just distorted. So it would spin a lot easier. I think I was able to sustain nasal breathing and get like a 180 cal 10 minute assault bike test, which is really good for especially being able to like be sub-maximum. And it was really frustrating because I just retested that and I got 171 on like a newer assault bike that didn't have deformed blades. And I was like, it's kind of, you know, upset because like you want to be able to test and retest and have an accurate result and compare. And I know I'm not that much more out of shape. I was working way harder and it was frustrating because I was like, man, you know, I'm curious as to what I would actually get on that other bike. <laughs> so you just realize that you cannot compare. You cannot test. Don't have an athlete or yourself test on one bike and then go over to a different bike and try it out three months from now. It could be worse. And they might've actually gotten better or vice versa. And that's this exact reason why we aren't using them for online qualifiers. So let's move past some of the problems that we see with the air bike and kind of actually move on to if we're training for the air bike, what does that actually mean for, for people? And I, I think it's one of two things. One, that there are competitions where the air bike is or at least could be used. So this means that they essentially have a fleet of bikes. So let's just say they have a dozen bikes that they can use and have multiple heats running at the same time or push people through. And that way it's not an issue of there being inconsistencies because one's rogue and one's aerosol bike, one's newer, one's older, that kind of thing. Or you're trying to use it as to be transferable to other fitness endeavors like cycling, like just like fitness performance as a whole, like general conditioning or whatever you kind of wanted to yield to. So I'm going to pretend that both of those are true, that one, you might see in a comp and that two, you want to transfer to other training avenues. I think that's probably the most applicable to the most people. So let's get into it. What's the outline for today going to look like? I'm just going to go down through each of these topics. I'm going to try to move through these fairly quickly, but it's a lot to cover. I'll be honest. Number one, reasons I love the assault bike or the air bike. Two, setting up the bike. So how to actually set it up so you can get optimal power out of it. And then three, optimizing the pedal stroke for bi-directional versus tri-directional power. So basically thinking pedal, push, pull versus just pedal and pushing. 
Five, no gears. There's no gears. So what are the implications of that? Six, technique for Metcons. So how should you attack certain types of workouts? Seven, power and dosage. So if you have a powerful athlete, how much dosage, like total time or time per interval should they get? Kind of dive on that. And then energy systems testing on the air bike. And lastly, some training protocols based on if from that testing we reveal that person is a powerful versus enduring type of athlete. So it's a lot to cover. I'll try to be quick with it, but at the same time, I do want to give it justice. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Reasons I love the air bike. I love the air bike. Number one, and this is true for all ergs, by the way, I love them for warmups. I love them for cooldowns. I love them for recovery days, rebound sessions, and just blood flow work in general. But there's specific reasons why I like them. And I'm going to go through six of those reasons here. Well, number one, it is low eccentric. We have to realize that for the bike, there's a seat and you're sitting on that seat. And that's number one, your body weight supported. So you almost naturally have a less eccentric demand. So if you're running or doing double unders or gymnastics, gravity is involved in those so much and you're having to support your own weight. That does become, as simple as it is, an issue if you're doing it a lot. So it's a low eccentric environment. So what that means is that as the muscle is contracting, it is also getting longer. So think of it as you're lowering a squat. So you're still fighting against that load, but your muscle is also getting longer as it's doing that. So that's the actually where you get sore from. Unaccustomed eccentric contractions or just like if you're handling too much volume in that, if it's heavier than you're used to, if it's just not a pattern that you're used to, all those things will make you sore. So if you have some sort of delayed onset muscle soreness, typically it's from a higher eccentric environment and the air bike is a low eccentric environment, which is one of the reasons why I like it. People don't get sore from it. Two, there's a low mobility demand. So at no point is any of your joints really taken through an extreme range of motion. Three, there's really low strength demand. So obviously, in order to get a good score or to be powerful on the bike and produce a lot of wattage, you have to be strong. But at the same time, that's not a requirement for you to actually get on the bike and start moving, where it is for things like muscle ups or any gymnastics, really, or even standard weights for weightlifting. Weightlifting as an external load, again, in this case. Four, low skill demands. So it doesn't really require any skill. Again, if we go to moving external loads, even if it's simple as a deadlift, that takes quite a bit of skill relative to a salt bike. And we could do the same thing for touch and go snatches or box jumps or any of these other higher skill things. Um, Gymnastics are all really good examples of that. Five, it is full body and it is systemic. It's kind of redundant there, but just realize that there's less local stress and fatigue because you're using your entire body. So because you're using your legs, your arms, and potentially multiple muscle groups within all of those, and it's really pretty well balanced that you are going to have less local fatigue. And that means it's more systemic by definition. And then lastly is that you can test. And as you're testing, you can go full send You are safe in that environment to redline, which again, cannot be said for a lot of other testing scenarios. So if you are doing open workouts and the open workout is muscle ups, box jumps, and touch and go snatches, that's not a super safe environment, especially if you're a novice or especially if you don't have great position or skill under fatigue, that's going to be an issue for you versus I can take someone who's detrained and put them all the way up to the redline and I don't have to worry about them coming off a box jump or returning a bar down to their hip in a snatch or any of those sort of things. It's a very safe environment for them to redline, for them to go 
hard for them to really figure out what is your true aerobic or anaerobic or alactic threshold. And I know that you're probably going to be safe as you're doing that. So those are all reasons why I love the bike. Okay, let's get into setting up the bike to be in an optimal position. So this is not just optimal in terms of how you organize the bike, but optimal for your body so that you can produce power. And you're going to optimize for your leg drive, not for your upper body. So your upper body, yes, it needs to be in a decent position, but really that contributes much less to the total output on the bike relative to your legs. So your legs are the big muscles. They're going to be driving the majority of the movement. That's what you want to optimize that position for. So within that, there's two places you can adjust. One is the seat height and two is the seat slide. So basically how high you are on the bike and how far behind you are from that axle point. The bigger the person is, the higher that seat's going to go and the longer their femurs are, the further back they're going to go. So it's total leg length and their femur length. So the easiest way to find this position on your bike, take the pedal, move the pedals to the very bottom of the stroke, the lowest it can go, and then place your heel on that pedal. When you are at that position, if your seat is at the right height, you should have a completely straight leg. So your legs locked out, but you shouldn't have to shift your hips where you're kind of reaching for that pedal and your one hips higher than the other now. So if you're going through your stroke and you're having to reach a little bit as you get to the bottom of the stroke, that's too high. And if you, you're not going to, but if you can't lock out your leg at the bottom completely, then it's too low. So for most people, I see them having the seat just a little bit too low. And if they could go a notch higher, they'd probably have a little bit more efficiency to ease out of it. And the easiest way to figure this out is if you can go a notch higher and you realize that you still aren't shifting your hips, that's probably a good thing for the most part. Or if you're not having to reach with your toes, that's the other way you'd do it. So higher is better to a point. The other thing you can do and start to look for in this position is creating a plumb line from the front of your shoe or the middle of your pedal up to your knee. So basically a plumb line is if you hold up like a string with like a weight on the bottom, that's always going to be vertical. If you think about it that way, you're going to hold that off the front of your knee and that should land between the middle of the pedal where you'd actually apply the force and the front of your shoe somewhere in that range. That's where you want that to be. This is going to allow access to both your posterior and anterior. So both like your glutes and your hamstrings and also your quads. And that way you can take advantage of both muscle groups and you're not just relying on quads all the time if your seat's a little bit too far forward. Once you've optimized for your leg drive, then you're going to lean forward a bit. That torso lean should be slight that you are actually being able to get in a position where now you can both potentially push and pull on the handles. So when you're pushing and pulling on the handles that at the terminal pushing positions, so like right where they go to kind of switch positions where they stop moving and then turn around, that's a really inefficient place to actually push and create power from. So you want to create most of your power if you are pushing and pulling to be kind of in the middle, almost like where your hands are going past each other versus at the ends. The ends are an inefficient place to create power. Let's talk about optimizing the pedal stroke. So the pedal stroke is essentially where, as you kind of trace that circle through space, where are you actually going to be pushing really hard versus not pushing really hard? So if we think about or we compare the pedal stroke to a clock, so pretend you're watching someone's foot trace through space, you're watching them assault bike from the side, and you're watching their, their foot go around, you could compare that to a clock, where most of the power that you want to create is between 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock on that handle, so to speak. So you're going to try to dump most of your power during that time. Again, so right as your foot kind of comes past the top of the stroke from one o'clock down to just before your legs kind of extended at the bottom, four o'clock or five o'clock. And that's where you're going to push the most power. And this is because you have access to both your quads and your glutes during this time. And other places in the stroke, it's going to be less efficient because you're just having to rely on smaller muscle groups or you just can't because you don't have clips on your shoes. 
even if you did have clips on your shoes, you still don't want to like really pull up and be aggressive in that way. So as you're doing that, as you're kind of pressing in between one o'clock and four o'clock, your opposite hand's also going to be pushing onto the handle to create power and to add to that power. And potentially the same side is also going to be pulling as you do that. So if we continue on with that stroke, five o'clock to seven o'clock, you can almost think of this as it's at the bottom, but you can almost think of it as scraping mud off the bottom of your shoe if you're going to try to really apply pressure there. And it's not super efficient way to do that, especially without clips. So I definitely don't recommend actively doing that. I mean, I would say play around with it and try to get a feel for it. But for the most part, you're not going to really try to actively do that while you're pedaling. For the back of the stroke, I mean, as you're coming up, you, you simply just can't apply any pressure because you don't have clips. So even if you did have clips, again, you wouldn't be applying pressure there. And then from 11 o'clock through one o'clock, you can think about almost kicking your foot forward as trying to create pressure that way. And that's relatively inefficient. And it's going to like put you in a really bad place in terms of like your quads. You're just going to blow up your quads if you try to do that. So I don't, I don't recommend that either. Most of your power output is going to be between one o'clock and four o'clock on that stroke. And this is just a natural pattern of contraction and relaxation that leads to efficiency ultimately. And for one, this is making sure we don't have venous occlusion. We're not getting a muscle pump from this. And two, we're allowing for motor unit cycling. So basically certain aspects of your muscles turning off as other ones turn on, your body's going to find a way to create efficiency within that pattern versus kind of continuously applying force and that burning out that muscle. That's not what we want to do. And that's a big issue for a lot of people, especially really powerful athletes. So that's not the goal with this at all. The goal is to create sustainable movement. So let's talk about bidirectional versus tridirectional power output. Bidirectional power output is simply pedaling and pushing on the handles, whereas tridirectional output is pedal push and now you're adding a pull onto it. If you are doing sprinting efforts on the assault bike, the goal is to create the most power you possibly can. You're going to use every avenue of power output that you can. So you're going to be doing pedal, push and pull. If however, you are working to be as sustainable as possible, and that's definitely not the same thing. We'll talk about that in a second, but you are going to be just using the most efficient means to get the work done, which in this case will just be pedaling and pushing. So you're not going to actively pull. The reason why the pooling adds another layer and actually makes it more difficult and less sustainable of for the movement is because think about it. If you were pulling with your left hand and you're pressing with your right hand, you are creating a big rotational force. That's something you would do to um, like flip an object over. So you're creating this big force through your abs and your core, but yet you don't want to create any motion. So your core has to stop that movement. You have to create an anti-rotation force to actually stop that. So it's not a very efficient thing to do. And it plays a big role in taxing your respiratory muscles for not just breathing, but moving. And we want to make this as simple as possible. So we're going to move down to bi-directional output. So simply, you're just going to pedal and push with your opposite hand to kind of keep balance and be able to maintain posture and not really being super active with your upper body because the upper body is in a super effective way to actually push on the bike handles anyway. It's not as effective for power output. Again, this is just the difference between sprinting and sustaining, and those things are just different overall. I mean, this this applies to almost all motor patterns. There's one way to do it that's really sustainable and effective in terms of efficiency, and there's another way to be effective in terms of maximal pace or load. So if we take this to like locomotion, like walking or running, to the novice walking and running, those things might seem like very similar, but we all know that those are not the same thing. To say that somebody who is running is the same technique as walking, they're not. Like the one you have one foot off the ground, the other one you have both feet off the ground at a certain point. So like they're just fundamentally different and that's going to change and walking is way more efficient than running and everyone knows that and that's why everyone walks around all the time. They don't run. 
So running, yes, people can be efficient at running, but if we're talking about what is sustainable at lower power outputs for longer periods of time, it's walking. So again, the same reason for bi-directional power output, simply pedal and push if you're trying to go nice and slow for a really long time. And if you got to sprint and take it up, okay, add in the pool. Next, you're going to notice that the air bike doesn't have any gears. Like what the heck? Since I was five years old is the last time that I had a bike without gears. And now I have all these bikes everywhere that don't have any gears. So what's the deal with that? Number one, realize that when a bike does not have gears, that means that the RPMs, so the revolutions per minute, how many pedals you're doing per minute is fixed. It's tied with your wattage. So your power output and the number of times that you're pedaling per minute are going to be exactly the same, which makes it really cool because now we can look at someone's RPMs and we can just convert that really easily to watts because we know that there's no gears that they can play with. Whereas someone who is a cyclist and they're able to switch their gears, they might be spinning it really quickly, but they have low wattage, or it could be the opposite where they're just kind of going through lower RPMs and they're mashing their way through. And those are actually the exact terms that cyclists will use, spinning or mashing, to basically talk about what is efficient. So mashing, you can kind of like already tell like that's a kind of a negative connotation. For athletes, especially smaller athletes on the air bike, you aren't going to be able to get away from mashing, so to speak, where you are always going to be stuck in those lower RPMs and your joint velocities are always going to be slow. So it just kind of saps all the energy out of your legs. And this is why smaller athletes, especially smaller female athletes, especially smaller female athletes who are efficient, like the, the typical small gymnast has a really hard time on the air bike just because they're not efficient because they can't be because their RPMs are so low and it just makes it really difficult for them. The one ways to overcome this is number one, just continuing to work on the bike and get better at the bike. That's not a super helpful explanation. Realize that potentially you could get a geared bike or a bike like a bike erg, for example, that has gears, or at least you can change the, the resistance for and to be able to start spinning at higher RPMs and get efficiency back in where those joint velocities are moving quicker and that you are actually able to build efficiency back into that pattern and then start to slowly build into a little bit harder efforts and lower RPMs and slowly start to carry over some of that efficiency into the lower RPMs. But either way, it's just going to be challenging overall to actually make that happen, truthfully. All right, so let's talk about technique for Metcons. I'm talking about calories here, so I'm not talking about distance. If you're biking for distance, you're not going to take on this approach, so caveat there, but very rarely do I see assault bike workouts or air bike workouts written for anything other than calories. Like Distance just isn't common to see that, so this is a majority of workouts, but realize that if it is a distance workout like this many miles or this many kilometers, that's going to be a kind of a different beast. But pretending that we have a rounds for time workout where you're coming back to the bike and it's not like just pretend they're simple movements like burpees and running or something like that. And you're able to get to the bike and be at least kind of recovered enough where you can kind of get to work right away. What you're going to do is you're going to burst and then bleed is what I call it. So bursting in, in terms of you're going to get that work rate up and kind of build that momentum of the flywheel right away. And then bleeding, just kind of allowing your watts to bleed. So like just kind of letting them slowly wane over time. And what that's going to allow for is you realize like when you first jump on the bike, that first calorie takes like forever. It seems like once you've actually gotten up to speed, those calories go a lot quicker. So we have to kind of avoid wasting that time at the beginning of the workout, getting up to speed. So get up to speed quickly, get a little bit higher than you're actually planning on sustaining and then bleed your wattage down to the place that you want to sustain, sustain that for however long you need to until you get off the bike and then get off the bike. Ghost calories. So ghost calories being like you're off the bike, it's still going and you're still getting calories, uh, still getting a score because the, the pedals keep going, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon, but that's going to happen. And if you build enough momentum, you could potentially use that to your advantage as well. If it's in this 
work cows environment. I mean, it also applies to distance, but just to a lesser degree. So I call that the burst and bleed. And that's kind of the technique that I would be using. And if you're trying to game a Metcon, and you shouldn't always try to game Metcons, but if you're in kind of a competitive scenario, by all means, do it. Next, let's talk power and dosage. So let's just pretend you go into a CrossFit affiliate class and they're like, all right, guys, um, today's workout is 20 second interval sprints on the assault bike. And everybody's going to be looking around like, oh gosh, here we go. And they're going to look over and be like, oh, yikes, granny over there. She's going to have a really hard time on the bike. And then really what happens is you get done with the workout and everyone looks over and granny's like not even breathing that hard. And she was like, man, I'm feeling like I could probably go for a run after this because I didn't feel like that was a great workout. And meanwhile, there's a 240 pound gorilla of a man who's rolling around on the floor over there. And you're like, wait, is that the guy who's like always squatting in the corner and he's like a complete animal? And you realize that he's the one who's actually like on the pain cave on this one. What you need to realize is the stronger the athlete is, the faster they can do damage to themselves. So if you have a really powerful, really strong athlete, they are going to be able to handle less volume in maximal sprints on the assault bike. Meanwhile, someone who is a weaker athlete or is a less powerful athlete, it's going to take them a much longer time to do the same amount of damage or to get the same dosage, or it's just going to be a different dose response for that athlete. So if we have someone who's not powerful, like granny, they're going to have to take a lot longer of a sprint to do the same amount of damage to themselves as a really powerful athlete. So how I would get around this is I'm just going to give you an example. I think you probably get the idea from this and then I'll just kind of move on because I do think this is an important point, but I don't think I need to spend a ton of time on it. So let's just say the workout was every two minutes for six sets. So that's 12 total minutes. And just say you you have to keep that work rest because this is a class scenario and you want everybody to go at the same time or whatever. So let's say the workout is every two minutes for six sets. So that's 12 minutes. You're going to have that class do an assault bike sprint. First thing I would do is have each person go and max out their wattage or RPMs on the assault bike to figure out where their peak watts are. So basically, that's a really simple test to figure out how powerful are you. In that case, I would have them be tailored to that specific workout. So for example, if I have someone who's over 1500 watts, so that'd be really powerful, I'm only going to have them sprint for maybe 12 seconds. Whereas if I have someone who is between 1000 and 1500 watts at their peak, I might have them sprint for 15 seconds. If they're only at 600 to 1000 watts, I might have them do 20 seconds. And if they're pretty weak or like really enduring and not powerful at all, maybe they're like under like maybe 600 watts, I'm going to have them sprint for maybe even 25 seconds, like a pretty long time. And if you had that really powerful athlete do a 25 second sprint, they're going to get one and then all the rest are going to be dropped off and just terrible results. Whereas if you have them do that 12 second, they're going to be able to come back and repeat that score. And that is ultimately the goal here. The thing we need to remember from all of this is the stronger the athlete, the faster they can do damage. So oftentimes as athletes get stronger and more powerful, we actually need to give them less rather than giving them more. Okay, so next let's talk about testing on the air bike. And I've already alluded to one of these, but the first one I would do is that max wattage test. So this person's ramping up and once they're up to speed, they're gonna hammer that as hard as they can and see where they can max out the wattage. So maybe they they peak at 1800 watts would be a great score for males or you know, 1400 watts would be an awesome score for females. Most people aren't gonna be that high, but that's our first metric. And then we're gonna compare that to their 10 minute test for max calories. So 10 minutes on the air bike and they're just going at a steady pace and getting as many calories as they can in 10 minutes. So this is really hard. It's, it's a mainly aerobic. There's, it's definitely anaerobic too. It's a really good actually time domain for like a VO2 max test, to be honest. 
So this is where we're comparing sprint to sustain just really roughly. And I really like both of these tests and I don't do much in the middle because you can gather most of what you need from either the sprint or the sustain and you don't need to do a ton of uh, lactic middle work um, to be able to figure that out. Because again, we're going to move them towards that anyway during competition prep. So I don't feel like that has as much value. I think for some more advanced CrossFit competitors that could be useful. But for the most part, I have people do sprint and sustain. So that the max wattage test or the ramping up, seeing the max wattage and then the 10 minute test for max calories and then comparing against a battery of results as to where they're at. So I have all the scores from all my athletes. I see where they compare and I know from all that experience as to whether they need to be working more on sustainable work or more on sprint work. So if they do really well, really high wattage, but not as great on the max calories in the 10 minute test, then I know they need to spend a lot more time on sustainable work. Whereas if if they uh, crush the the 10 minute test, but their, their wattage doesn't peak super high. Okay. We need to spend more time focused on a lactic or sprint focused. So I'm going to go through both of those avatars. Now that first avatar being the enduring athlete who needs that a lactic sprint focus. So I'm just going to go through a couple of example protocols that I could have these athletes do. The first one would just be intervals really simply every two minutes for eight sets. So it'd be like 16 minutes. Going to do a set of maybe 10 for males, seven calories for females, a sprint. So it's really simple. It's just another way to develop that alactic power. And it's probably going to take them 10 seconds, depending on the athlete, potentially less than that. So again, it's alactic where you're not actually having that fatigue start to accumulate yet. A second sample workout would be every minute and 15 seconds. So we're bringing down the time domain, but we're going to give them more sets. We'll say 15 sets. We're going to have them just wind up. So meaning that they're just going to spin up on the bike, getting up to speed on their RPMs for four seconds, and then an all out sprint for six seconds. So this kind of just like pulls back some of the layers of we're not wasting all of our energy, pushing the bike up to speed and rather we're pushing the RPMs after we've already gotten up to speed. That's kind of subtle, but it's a little bit different. And same thing with the time domains. A third example would be wind-up sprints. So this one's going to start to be a little bit more alactic endurance where the first 10 seconds, we'll just have them maybe at like 50% of their max wattage. And then from 10 seconds to 20 seconds, we'll have them at 75% of their max wattage. And the last example would just be 20 minutes. So it's actually, this is starting to move more into sustainable work, but layering the bursts or the power output onto it, where it's a 20 minute clock for max calories, but on the minute, including zero, 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 you got to peak the wattage above 60% of your max wattage score. Say it was, you got a thousand watts, you'd have to peak it above 600. Our second avatar is the powerful athlete. So this person needs an aerobic or sustainable focus. So our first example is just Tabata, Tabata being 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. And we could say, okay, you're going to build to 40% of your max wattage. And then you're just going to slowly bleed those watts across the remainder of the 20 seconds. So you're basically building and then allowing that to bleed. But again, never build super high. It's all pretty sustainable. So our second sample workout is four sets of three by 20 or 15 calories. So the way you would, you would read that is you do 20 calories. If you're a male, you'd rest 45 seconds. You do 20 calories. You rest 45 seconds. You do 20 calories. And then you do four sets of that and you'd be resting three minutes between each one. It sounds confusing. It's easier when it's written out. I'll have examples on the show notes. So go, go check that one out. 
The next sample workout, again, a really easy way to modulate someone's intensity is with nasal breathing. And I've talked about that in the previous episode. So go check that out. That was episode number four. But from zero to five minutes, you're going to be holding 14 to 16% of your max wattage and pretty low, but you have to be nasal breathing. And then starting at five minutes, you're going to add one RPM every 15 seconds. So it's a ramp up that starts at five minutes. And you're going to do that until you break nasal breathing. So you're breathing through your nose the whole time. This is going to be stressful nasal breathing. That's fine. And you're going to spin for those easy for those first five minutes. And then you're going to bring it back up. You'll recover. You'll get off the bike. And once you recover back to nasal breathing as quickly as you can, and then you'd go and you could repeat that and you could do that two or three or four times potentially. Our last sample workout is actually a lot like the other one where it's 20 minutes, four max calories. And once again, on the minute, including zero, 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 you're going to hold 32 to 35% of your max wattage for 15 seconds. So it's actually pretty low in this case lower than the other one. But again, if this is a super powerful athlete, their max wattage score is going to be kind of artificially inflated relative to their sustainability. So we have to watch that a bit more. It's just good to realize that programming is going to differ for a person for their percentages based on if they're super powerful versus if they're not super powerful. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I really hope these protocols are helpful. I really hope they actually play a part in your future training on the assault bike. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay the course. If you enjoy the show, do me a huge favor and give the fitness movement a positive review. And as a way to say thanks, I will send you the 12-week workout plan of your choice from my website. Simply email me at ben at zorfitness.com. That's ben at zorfitness.com, with zor being spelled Z-O-A-R. Thanks in advance. Hey, it's Ben again, and I want to talk to you for a minute about one of my programs that I offer on ZorFitness.com. It's called Gymnastics Density for the Big Five. What's the Big Five? The Big Five is the five most important, five most commonly tested gymnastics movements. One, muscle-ups, both bar and ring. Two, handstand push-ups. Three, handstand walks. Four, chest bar And five, toast bar. If you're a person who claims to be a competitor in the sport of fitness, but you aren't adept at producing gymnastic density, you will not reach your potential in the competitive space. And it is exactly why I wrote this program. It's for the people who want to upgrade their gymnastics performance. To learn more about the program, go to zorfitness.com store or simply Google gymnastics density program.